I realized it was is quite challenging to compare a digital health company to a fintech company to a mobile gaming company. So as a partnership, we were trying to figure out where our next check was going to go. And I just wanted to double down in healthcare. So I made the decision to either join another group that was entirely focused on healthcare or maybe start something of my own. Welcome back to Startup Health Now, the podcast where we celebrate the entrepreneurs and innovators who are transforming health. I'm your host, Logan Plaster. Today, we welcome Cheryl Chang to the show. Cheryl's the CEO and founder of Vive Collective. Previously, she was a partner at Blue Run Ventures, one of the top VC firms in Silicon Valley. Now at Vive, she's taking her 15 years of experience growing startups and putting it specifically into building, funding, and scaling digital health companies. Cheryl's also an advisor to Stanford's Biodesign program and is on the advisory board for Yale Medical School's Digital Health and Innovation Center. We wanted to have Cheryl on to one of our fireside chats to learn about Vive Collective since it's a relatively new kid on the block and hear what kinds of opportunities she's seeing in the market. I held this conversation in front of a live virtual audience of founders from the Startup Health portfolio, so you'll get to hear some of their tactical questions for Cheryl mixed in throughout the session. The goal of these sessions is to have candid conversations with folks who can cut through the corporate speak and investment jargon, and Cheryl Cheng understood the assignment. I hope you enjoy. I gave some highlights, but I'd like to start by getting to, you, getting to know you a bit better. I mentioned Blue Run, but you've also worked in innovation at big consumer brands like, I think, Procter & Gamble. Um, so what's been a through line for your career and additionally, what's something important about your professional journey that we're not going to learn on LinkedIn? Yes, actually. So if you look at my LinkedIn, my professional journey seems to bounce all over the place. Um, so I went to, um, I did a major in undergrad that really um, taught me how to learn more than it taught me exactly the pieces of knowledge that I would then carry on in the rest of my career. And I, and I've taken that, um, that philosophy into every job that I've had. And so every job for me had to be a job where it taught me how to learn. And I, and I was always learning. Um, otherwise it just wasn't exciting for me. Um, so I think, um, one of the things that became very core in its core to my investment, um, approach is you have to, follow the consumer. Um, and I, and I learned this most actually when I was doing investment banking and you were so far removed from the consumer and the end user of the product. And then when I got to Clorox, um, and did the innovation joint venture with Procter and Gamble, we would literally go into people's homes and we'd watch them cook food, take out trash, scoop cat poop, like, you know, all of these different things to figure out how they could best use our products. And, um, and that's something I brought in with me to all of my venture investing, even though I don't do CPG investing, I do think a lot in healthcare, given how complex it is, you know, who are all the stakeholders and have we actually addressed all of them? And at the core of it, it is really the patient. Um, you know, are we delivering something to the patient that can change their behavior or really addresses all of their needs and, and maybe not just the one that we want, you know, sitting in front of them on a on a small mobile screen. So um, that's something that I I care deeply about and I push my team to think about when we think about working with um, you know, with small ideas that we hope to build into big companies one day. Um 
I love that. I love that experience, by the way, with Procter and Gamble and getting so close to the consumer. And I feel like we could have a whole conversation about how that needs to happen in healthcare with patients and understanding true behavior and not assumed behavior. Well, I remember one of my first like in-home visits, you know, we were interviewing moms and, and everybody wants to talk about how they care about feeding their children healthy food, right? Because like no one's going to say, hey, my favorite thing is to give my kid cookies. Like it's like embarrassing. Um, so we spent an hour with this mom um, before her kids came home from school. And she kept talking about how she makes salads and she cuts fruit and how she wants to keep them fresh in the fridge. Then the kids come tearing through the kitchen. And the first thing the mom does is she's like, gets up and says, excuse me, I got to give my kids a snack. Reaches in the pantry and just starts shoving cookies into like these kids' mouths. And so if you ask them to take a survey, they're going to say they feed their, their families healthy food. If you actually watch their behavior, it's something completely different, right? But she's looking us in the eye, telling us she only gives her kids fresh fruit as she's like shoving Chips Ahoy cookies like into um, their hands. And so I always remember this because to me, there's a disconnect between what people really want to do and they aspire to do and then what they can actually feasibly do and then what they naturally do. Um, and so I think that's very true when we think about healthcare. You know, there's things that we really aspire to want to do at a system level and even at an individual level. And then there's what we really end up being able to do and, and to create products and technologies and services that can bridge that and then like generate outcomes to me is like the real win. So, um, and, and it's like intellectually interesting to think about how we can bridge that gap with innovation. You might not have an example, but does anything come to mind where you think in health, we have that divide where we are putting our uh, focus on the perceived uh, motivation and need versus how people really act. Absolutely. I mean, um, so, so there's two areas, right? Um, so if you ask any patient, do you think that it's important to manage your heart health? Um, you know, they're going to say yes. Right. Um, no one's going to say, yeah, you know, I, I want to go into heart failure one day or, um, you know, I want to be hypertensive. And if you ask them, like, do you believe that the steps to becoming healthier, exercising more, eating better? Again, they're going to say yes. And they're going to say, I want to do these things. Then the reality of what they what they really do, um, there's a huge gap. Right. And so in one of the companies I had invested in early in my digital health investing career, we had to demedicalize a medical condition in order to help people change behavior. And that is actually almost antithetical to saying, hey, I'm going to start a digital health company because we're just trying to push, you know, we think we want to push clinical workflow into solutions as much as possible. But what we really talked about was, okay, how can we help you manage your blood pressure? Do you own a cat or a dog? When you come home from work, maybe you should pet your, you know, pet your pet. It actually reduces your blood pressure. You know, maybe we can help you walk five extra minutes a day. It doesn't seem like a lot, but over time we can actually build up your stamina so that you can feel more confident that you can exercise. And so these were not really medical behaviors um, or clinical workflow, but we actually had to demedicalize a medical condition in order to achieve that. So that was something that I always found very interesting. You had to get a designer in there to really understand that user interface. Another 
opportunity. Um, this is actually a startup health company that we put money into um, a company called Genev, which is in the women's health space um, in menopause. And I had this insight as an investor where it was like so many women talk about suffering through menopause and, and literally it's something that every woman's going to go through. Right. So the TAM is like unquestionable, but then when it came down to getting women to say, yes, I'm going to pay out of pocket for something that could help me manage this, you know, this period of time in my life, it turns out it was actually much more difficult. We really had to like segment women um, much more granularly than we thought because the analog was we looked at what Hims and Roe was able to do in men's health. And we thought, of course, we can do this in women's health. You know, the problem is so much more acute. Women are, you know, managing 80% of healthcare spend in their family. You know, why wouldn't they be able to go into this? And that's where there was this, there was this void, if you will, this chasm that we had to cross where women knew what they should do for themselves, but then to take the time and the money to do it took a lot more convincing than we thought. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting. Sometimes you don't really know until you get in there and navigate around the patient and understand their psychology to see where the business model is going to be. I love that. I love that. So getting out of the lab, getting out of your office, really testing your assumptions, questioning your assumptions. Okay. Let's get into Vive Collective. We want to know all about it. We want to know why you started it. What, the, what your primary investment thesis is, kind of uh, what types of companies you invest in. So start us off with uh, the origin story. Why leave Blue Run and start your own venture? Yeah, so that was like the scariest moment of my career um, was to do that. I loved my team at Blue Run. I mean, they were the ones that gave me both the runway the confidence, the support to like move into an investing role. Um, and so this is, you know, more of a personal journey. When I came to Blue Run, I had a nine month old that like hardly slept, ate poorly, you know, I was exhausted. And so I came to Blue Run thinking I would take my operating experience, having been an operator at Clorox and Procter and & Gamble and, and apply that to some of the mobile technology companies that Blue Run was investing in at the time. And, and they were great in sort of giving me this operating partner role. And I was very happy in that role. I did that role for a number of years and got into helping them fundraise their funds and, and um, learning more of the business of venture, which is kind of a conversation unto itself. Um, and then my senior partner said, you know what, you should really cut your teeth on writing checks, right? Like, you know, you've kind of danced around this investment role for so long. Why don't you do that? And it was really with his support that I kind of made the foray into it. And I did it with wanting to pick an area that I would focus in. And, um, and I chose digital health because I saw how much mobile had transformed fintech mobile gaming, consumer mobile, which were all areas that Blue Run had invested in and had been very successful in. And I thought healthcare is this like last bastion that like, you know, mobile was starting to um, impact. Let's make some investments in that area. So that's what kind of got me into digital health. Um, I realized it was is quite challenging to compare a digital health company to a fintech company to a mobile gaming company. So as a partnership, we were trying to figure out where our next check was going to go. And I just wanted to double down in healthcare. So I made the decision to either um, join another group that was entirely focused on healthcare um, or maybe start something of my own. So this was in 
March of 2020. Um, so if you go back in time, perfect timing, like two weeks before everything locked down. So, um, I had a few weeks of very sleepless nights, lots of stress. I'm a planner. I've never left a job without knowing what my next job was going to be. So, um, that was hard. And then, um, you know, but we had some of the tailwinds of COVID that kind of really shone a light on the need for better healthcare. I ended up um, partnering with Clear Lake Capital, which is an incredible top decile private equity fund, um, diversified. And they gave me a super unique platform to build Vive on. So we will build and invest in digital health and health tech companies, roughly, you know, we're earmarking about 70% to be digital health and another 30% for what we call health tech. So more kind of B2B SaaS type investments. Um, We don't do life sciences. We don't do med devices, things like that. Um, We have a ton of capital flexibility, which was something else that I really wanted for Vive. Um, I wanted focus on a segment capital flexibility so we can invest at any stage. Um, We can buy assets, we can incubate companies, we can um, do divestitures from, you know, large healthcare companies and bring them in, put management teams around them and build them into platforms. So we're really flexible in the type of capital that we invest in and we can invest um, follow on rounds, even if like new investors don't want to come in or we, you know, things are going really good. We have a great board dynamic. We don't want to rock the boat on that. We will put more money behind those businesses. And so I wanted that flexibility for ourselves and also for our founders. Um, and, and then the last piece was, um, being able to build out what we call the collective, which is all around market access. So we want to wrap a lot of operating support around our projects. And so that means um, building strategic relationships with health systems, payers, pharma, employers, et cetera. So the first person actually that I, you know, convinced to join um, once we closed capital was Hillary and she manages all of what we call the collective. Um, And so our advisors, everybody is sort of, financially aligned to help our companies um, build, which, you know, was something that we as a team had to hold hands and say, we may make less ourselves, but like, you know, we want everyone to have alignment to, um, to support our companies as much as possible. So, so the collective side, we hope will also emerge as a real differentiation for our ability to, you know, bring companies to market. Interesting. So your your model is flex, flexible capital, so you can get involved early. How early do you get involved? Would you like to get involved in a company? Honestly, it's um, the round doesn't matter in terms of the nomenclature. Um, we care about being able to deploy a meaningful check, which for us is minimum like five million dollars, um, and there needs to be some demonstration of product market fit. Um, doesn't mean that the company is scaled or, you know, you have tons of revenue, but there's there's some flywheel there going or there's some um, engagement there that we can see that we feel like with our help and our capital, we can really start to expand and scale. Can you give some examples of what some of those metrics are that you might look for if a company is pre-revenue? So pre-revenue, it could be size of network um, that they've built out. 
Um, so in a marketplace environment, for example, we would say, all right, well, which side of the marketplace is harder to get? Is it the supply side or the demand side? And you know, usually the side that's harder to get might not be the side that's monetizing. So as long as we see that there's some network effect that's happening there, um, we would be willing to to jump in. Um, I say I would say that a hundred percent pre revenue would be kind of a little too early for us. Yeah. Um, the other side that would be too early for us is, you know, we are looking at digital therapeutics right now. And so in the digital therapeutic world, um, pre-FDA approval would be too early for us, even if they were generating some revenue through clinical trials and clinical studies, we would like to see at least one of the products um, cross FDA approval. Um, Cheryl, in our conversation before this, you talked about really wanting to be more than an investor, really being a company builder. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that. Tell us what you mean and how you want to dif dif differentiate Vive from a traditional VC. Um, so I think at a portfolio level, um, that means that we are going to do some non-traditional projects, right? So we will do joint ventures with health systems or insurance companies to actually like build products and then like spin them out to be like independent entities. So, so that is going to look quite different. Um, we don't necessarily believe that our insight is better than a founder's insight. So we're not going to be a venture studio per se, but like with a strategic partner that could have a, a baked in market access point, we would be very interested in, in doing that. And we also think that there's going to be some, um, interesting divestitures that are going to happen over the next 12 to 18 months. We could talk about the macro environment and why that's going to happen. Um, we also think about partnering with founders and CEOs to um, fund inorganic growth, which is something that's very interesting to us. So we're happy to fund core operations and, you know, we'll have operating partner support around that. But then we also would like to think about how can we leverage M&A to buy assets and buy contracts that can actually help accelerate growth. Um, and that will also look a little bit different because we will think about implementing those strategies probably a little earlier in a, in a company's life cycle um, than, than maybe most traditional venture would do. Um, lastly, you know, and I think this is going to be something that we have to prove and we have to earn the ability to say this, um, but we really do try to do it is we really try to wrap operating support around our companies. So that means um, everything from legal, finance, regulatory support down to market access. Um, who, who do you really need to know at what time and make sure that's the right time? So um, while I love you know, my work at Clorox and Procter and Gamble, I used to actually steer startups away from them as much as possible because you will die through the procurement process alone, right? Like signing those MSAs and getting through the security review. Like, do you really need to do that um, when you're a young startup? Are you better off going to a smaller partner? And I think about that the same way with, um, you know, digital health startups, like everybody wants, you know, to sign Mount Sinai or, you know, Providence or, you know, these like large health systems and, and they're fantastic. And I, and I um, wholeheartedly want, you know, all startups to do that, but that procurement MSA security review processes is painful and long. And, you know, you only can live as long as you've got cash. So if you only have like 12 to 18 months of cash, like that might not be the best place to spend your, your time and your money. So we try to create a collective of maybe what you might call like mid-tier 
you know, customers, it can be a little bit more nimble so that we can, we can really say like, how do you get that early traction and flywheel to go? So we, that's where we think about helping build some of that finance fundamental proof for um, young projects. Now, later stage things that we do, um, they're not going to need that. So they do want those intros to Mount Sinai and Mayo and all of those. And, and we have to be ready to make those introductions as well. Very interesting. Uh, you sort of teased the idea of, you know, your thoughts on the macro conditions of the market. I can tell from this conversation and our previous conversation uh, that you're you're a true industry analyst and you've really gone deep on the data. So where do you feel like we are? How would you describe those conditions and, and how they affect your strategy right now? So at a macro, macro level, I tell people we're in like a um, we're going to be in a tough time. Like I kind of, and a lot of people are like, oh yeah, you know, the, you know, 08, 09, like financial crisis. And I'm like, no, it's a little bit more like the 2001 to, you know, 2000 to 2002 internet boom bust combined with like the eighties inflation period. Right. Because the, 0709 period, like tech bounced back super fast. Like, you know, it was like a, if you look at like a recession graph, it was like a boom, boom. Right. And so um, very jarring that dislocation was hard, but it, it kind of snapped right back. I think the snap back this time is going to be um, much choppier and it's going to be uh, much longer. And so companies need to be prepared um, for that. So at a macro level, um, I do have concern. Um, I think that, and I know everybody here is not just in Silicon Valley, but I, I am in Silicon Valley. So I am very concerned about us living in our little bubble here um, and not feeling the pain that the rest of the country um, is going to feel. And in that, while we all work in healthcare, um, we're seeing that already in our health systems. And I think that's going to trickle down to a lot of other things. Um, but I also feel that we have to be cognizant of the fact that people's buying power is going to be less, um, and which is going to affect the way that they prioritize their life in, in healthcare is sadly going to be a part of that. And so we have to consider that as we're building products and solutions, because we're going to be in this, um, this very choppy macroeconomic environment for what I think is going to be, you know, the next 18 to 24 months. Yeah. One of the conversations that we've had uh, again and again is this idea that really great companies can be born out of these hard markets if they if they make oh. these moves early. So what are your words of wisdom for really preparing uh, not just to survive, but to thrive uh, a, a rocky moment? Um, I think you have to build for thriving in a recession. Um, so I was just having coffee with a friend of mine yesterday um, He's not in the healthcare space, but he said, you know what? Me and my co-founder, two men, no business building a women's fashion company. And he was like, and everyone turned us down. So because we never had any money, um, we had to do everything very scrappily. And I said, well, how's your business going? And he's like, well, we did 65 million in revenue last year. Uh, we've only raised $2 million ever, right? He was like, partly because nobody ever wanted to give us money. Also because we started the company in a recession. And so everything, our culture, our unit economics, our business model, everything was built for being able to survive and thrive in a recession. And so as terrible and doom and gloom as it sounds, I actually think that this is 
like the hardiest time to build a company, you know, as, as an early stage company, um, because the constraint that you will face will force you to make some tough decisions. And those decisions will, will harden you against what will be tough times the next two years. And and you're going to come out of it just being much more battle tested than some of the startups that only raised money during the great times. And now have to right-size their teams, right-size their budgets. Some of them don't even have the the product that can withstand, you know, they don't have the unit economics to withstand, you know, the pain over the next two years. And so, um, so that's going to be really hard. So I actually think if you are, you know, a later stage company that isn't really set up for a recessionary time, um, that's a, it's going to be a tougher 18 months than the startups that are starting right now. Um, cause you're starting with a blank piece of paper. You can make a lot of choices still, um, without a lot of business debt to carry into the recession. That's fascinating. Um, I want to hear from someone on the call who's sort of wrestling with some of those issues and, and seeing the opportunity in, uh, building, a leaner business during these times that will serve them down the road. Um, uh, Natalie Davis from Prevent Scripts just popped a question in here, and we're just going to go directly to you, Natalie. So come off mute and you can go ahead and ask. Hi, Cheryl. Thanks for being with us here today. Um, I know a little bit about um, companies being scrappy. We're a two woman founder company in the middle of nowhere in Western Kentucky. And um, if you've ever taken a look at the Robert Wood Johnson obesity map and seen where those, <laughs> hey Holly, seen where all the red states are in the Southeast, we live in the absolute center of that. And so I just would like to hear a little bit more about the geography of the companies that you consider to be investable. And um, can you expound upon your comments on traction required for that $5 million seed investment? You mentioned early revenues. You mentioned, I think, a couple of customers. Um, Mm -hmm. But just what kind of color can you provide for that? Yeah. So on the geography side, um, we will only invest in companies that have a U.S. go-to-market. So um, quite frankly, I don't you know, I can barely understand the complexities of the U.S. health system, like forget like going to another country. Um, however, we we do have um, companies that would consider having engineering teams like outside the U.S. So, so that's why I say U.S. go to market strategy within the U.S. We don't have any geographic constraints, um, you know, so so that. Um, that doesn't matter to us, but we do have a U.S. focus, so that's pretty easy on um, traction required for investment. um, I will say it is a, there's no one size fits all. Um, I think of technology only companies very differently as technology enabled services companies very differently than services companies. So I don't really, um, so for example, if you are going to be a services company, like you better show up with some revenue um, because there's no reason for you to not have some revenue, right? Because otherwise you are like an idea on a PowerPoint slide. So I, right. I I put more weight on having 
revenue because that revenue is an opportunity for me to understand the unit economics and the margins in the business. And if you don't have anything, like I'm really investing in an idea. Whereas if you're a pure technology company, and let's just say like you're an AI software company, you might need $5 million just to build the core infrastructure and the algorithm and all of that before you can even start to sell anything. So there's this spectrum and I don't, um, and I'm not trying to not answer your question, but like, you know, I, I don't like when people say, come to me once you have $1 million in ARR. Otherwise, like I'm not going to look at it because I think that's an artificial goalpost. And that's one that's going to move based on where the macroeconomic environment is shifting. Like right now, the market is so dicey that people are going to say, oh, no, not one million, two million. And so as a founder, you're like chasing this moving like goal line all the time. Instead, what I want to understand is like from each founder individually for your market, for your business plan, like. What are the proof points that you've been able to show? Like, again, like even if I said $1 million in ARR, if you came to me with a $1 million pilot from the DOD, I'd be like, yay, but that doesn't tell me anything because like a $1 million pilot from the DOD is like nothing, right? Versus if you said, hey, I have a million dollars in ARR from 10 customers, all 10 of these customers can grow from $100,000 to $5 million over the next two to three years. And this is what our NPS score looks like. And, and this is how much, you know, these customers are engaged with us. I'm like, okay, wow, that's super interesting because you have this kernel, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, my old partner at Blue Run was like, you gotta look for the kernel, the kernel that's like showing that while it's not at scale, there's some activity here, like this mm -hmm. heartbeat that's just gonna get stronger. Um, so I know I'm not really answering your question directly, but like- No, you I are, you team, are. <laughs> my team to think of it in a very bespoke manner because if we just do an artificial like $1 million across the board, we're going to miss some great founders and some great opportunities. And we're also going to perhaps talk ourselves into things that we shouldn't have talked ourselves into. So that's great. I'm a little Colonel. I like the, the analogy of the, of the Colonel. Yeah. And I can, I can, I can see that Colonel that sort of 10, 10 customer Colonel, and that growth, um, we're not Thanks. there just yet. <laughs> You'll get there. You will but get there. I'm, I'm excited yeah. to, to have that in our sights. Awesome. Thanks for the question, Natalie. Yeah, I love that analogy as well. And it's a sort of a way of shaping your narrative saying, okay, if all I've got right now is a heartbeat for future growth, what is that heartbeat? What is the exciting uh, kernel of potential? Um, let's go to another question uh, from Brad Helfen from Vu Vitamin. Brad, if you can come off a of mute, give us uh, just a couple sentences about what you do and ask your question. Hi, Cheryl. Nice to meet you and thanks for being here today. My name is Brad. I'm the CEO of a company called Vu Vitamin. We're a personalized vitamin company based in Chicago, started by two female physicians. And what we do is we use data to customize all-in-one multivitamin blends, so not pill packs, but like a customized Centrum, for example. And um, the question that I had is there's been a lot of chatter recently about D to C being dead. And for us, it's so important to have a direct data-based relationship with a consumer to calibrate their vitamin routine 
and recalibrate it over time, as well as educate them around their vitamin routine. And so D2C is a very critical channel for us in those direct database relationships. What, what are your thoughts about D2C being dead? Is it dead? Or are we entering a new paradigm of D2C? What are your uh, views? So um, my views are that there are certain things in healthcare that D2C is going to work well for, and there are certain things that it will not work well for. So I think you have to listen. I'm a classically trained brand person, right? So like, you're never going to get me to say that the relationship with the consumer is not important. It's very important. Now for a wellness brand um, where consumers are used to paying for their wellness products. Um, they find value and trust in having that direct relationship with the brand. D2C can definitely work. Um, and, it, and, I, and I think it will continue to work. Where I think um, it gets more challenging is when you get into areas that are delivering clinical healthcare. Um, Americans are not used to paying for it directly, and you you can build a DDC brand, but I think where it'll what'll end up happening is it'll end up being very concierge, um, and you won't be able to, you know, it's you can't do DDC MSK surgery, for example, right? Like, I mean, like it's not like we have this payer in the middle, and people are used to having it. Your business, I think, you absolutely can do D to C and it, and it can make sense, but your product is a multivitamin, which people have for years been used to walking down an aisle at like target or CVS and looking at, you know, the, the wall of different vitamins and, and picking one. They're used to having a direct relationship with the brand. Um, that is not going to be true for, you know, a GLP-1 drug that's like coming from pharma. So um, again, I think there's a, a model for each and it depends on where you are in the, the, um, the type of service or healthcare product that you're delivering. I think one of the reasons why people are concerned, investors are concerned around D2C brands is because there's always this... Um, fear of it's a race to the bottom and you're just spending tons of money on cost of acquisition and marketing. And what I would say is that is true. <laughs> um, th that is true. If you look at any of the major CPG companies and you look at their marketing budgets every single year on what they spend for marketing, it's going to be in the tens of millions of dollars for you know a large, a, a large brand. And you have to be willing to fund that type of operation. But that's where I would argue that like, you know, a D to C company, like a services company is going to be very different than an enterprise SaaS company. And the, the valuation multiples that different types of healthcare companies should command are going to look different. What we saw in the last two to three years when everybody was like, oh, this is like all digital health was like everybody applied the same multiple to everything. And that shouldn't be the case because it'll hold, you know, your company to a, a standard that you're not going to be able to achieve, right? Like you're never going to have the margins of an enterprise SaaS company or a Google or a Facebook. I mean, it, it it's unrealistic. So as a, as a founder, you have to know, like, 
this is my comparable set and you should be valuing me against this comparable set. You know, don't try to chase a tech multiple that isn't there. And at the same time, don't allow yourself to get penalized for, you know, a pure on the shelf, you know, vitamin company multiple as well. You're somewhere in between, right? And you have to like create that story and manage your team and your expectations and your investors' expectations against that. It's when we conflate models in financial multiples that like we all get in trouble. I appreciate the question, Brad. Let's go to a question uh, in the chat from Josh Resnikoff from TMA Precision Health. Josh. Hey, thanks, Cheryl. Uh, really fantastic presentation so far, really resonating with everything you're saying. Um, my question is just about two-sided networks. So TMA Precision Health, I'm the CEO and a co-founder. Uh, we bring better healthcare to rare disease patients, and in turn, they help us build the world's largest rare disease data marketplace. Um, so just would love to get your thinking about how you think about two-sided networks as part of your investment strategy, if you see them as really the future of personalized healthcare, especially in a, in a you know, um, market, you know, down market where people aren't really paying for consumer-based healthcare, but let me just stop there. Um, I love two-sided marketplaces. I hate them as well because they are hard, right? Like they're hard because you... I think the question is the the net the long term network effect of a two sided marketplace is so incredibly compelling, right? Like if you can, you know, effectively build that patient registry, especially in rare disease, right? Like I mean, how valuable is every single patient? Um, creating that liquidity in the marketplace and figuring out what that secret sauce is, like it's hard to do, right? But like if you can do it. Um, I think that the barriers to entry that you can build, the um, the value that you can create is so compelling. Um, so you know, we we have one in our um, in our portfolio as well, and um, you know, it really is about dissecting down like which side of the marketplace is harder to achieve first, you know, like what do you go after? How much money and capital is it going to take for you to get to a level of critical mass where you can start flipping on the other side and the other side is probably the side that's going to pay you tons of money. Um, and so, you know, kind of figuring that out um, is, um, I, I mean, again, like this is going to be like really nerdy of me to say it. Like, I love it because I think it's this like very intellectually interesting exercise. Um, I don't know that like founders that I talk to love that I love it for an intellectual exercise. They're just like, you have to stop like nerding out about this stuff. But I, I, I do think um, I do love them because I, I don't I, I love the defensibility of a two sided marketplace when you're the dominant player. Um, the path to getting to be the dominant player could be, um, could be storied. Um, and, and that's, you know, and that's part of the, the meandering road that like they have to take, but, um, I think they're super interesting. Thanks for the question, Josh. Let's go to, uh, Shavonda Haith. Uh, she's got a question from BrightPay. Go ahead and come off mute. Hi. Um, so my question is actually, um, so you mentioned that you have partner with um, hospitals and payers in order to help support founders um, and kind of push those initiatives forward. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you would in those partnerships think about protecting founders as well 
and their process of innovation. And then the second part of that is often when we hear about um, payers and their incubators, they're usually very closed access. So would love to hear about how your approach will be different in those partnerships and actually opening up the space a little bit. Um, great question. Um, so this is, you know, I wish my partner Hillary was here because she, she, you know, she's the one that really kind of manages the collective side of Vive Collective. Um, I think it's going to be, so if you ever meet Hillary, she's like the most relationship driven person you could ever find. And like her brain, like operates at like this other level that like, I don't even understand, like, um, cause she remembers everything. So I think it's about, um, having strong relationships, um, where people will be very open and honest with you about what their priorities are, what their feedback is. And so, um, we try, um, we try to build levels, uh, relationships across multiple levels in a large organization, right? So yeah, it's great to like know the CEO of like, you know, a health system or whatever, but like that person's actually like pretty far removed from, um, from like anything like, you know, like CEO of a health system is like, you know, shaking hands, kissing babies, like, you know, like doing like all these, like, like, they, like it's hard. Right. So like, sometimes you actually have to go to like the department chair of radiology and like, get to know like that person and like, see what like that person wants to buy. Um, you know, knowing the head of nursing or, you know, like the head of patient services, like, so it's, it's pretty like granular actually. And so what we try to do, um, and, you know, Hillary really leads the charge on this is like build relationships across an organization and not just at like the C-suite. Um, it's always helpful to kind of know the C-suite because sometimes that's the like the last nudge that you need to like get something done or get it done faster. Um, and then we actually protect our founders by keeping them from introductions that they want that won't be useful for them. So like, sometimes they'll be like, oh, like here's our wish list of like, you know, 10 introductions that we want. And Hillary will actually go in and be like, you're not ready for that one. You're not ready for that one. You know, because she knows that like, while we can do the intro, and maybe you'll get like one or two meetings, like nothing's going to happen, like nothing's going to come of it. So instead, we would rather say, okay, tell us why you want to meet these 10 people. We're going to tell you why four of these are like a like DOA, like don't even bother. And then these others, like they're interested, but this is a priority for the next quarter, not this quarter. And then here are actually five others that you didn't put on your list, but like based on what you told us what you want, you actually should meet these five people instead. So um, so, so we try to be very consultative from that standpoint on both sides. The other thing we really try to do is we try to introduce people to our, like what we call like strategic partners that aren't even in our portfolio. So like, you know, there are people who say like, Hey, you know, we're really interested in implementing this in our, you know, bedside. Like, you know, this, like, you know, if you ever see a device that can do this, like we'd love to meet with them. Well, we don't love investing in device companies, but we see them all the time. And so there's a couple health systems where like, I will regularly feed them opportunities that, we're not going to invest in, we have no financial stake in, but it helps us build trust that like, hey, you know, you're part of our network. We're thinking about you, even if it's not one of our companies. And um, and also for you as a founder, like even if we say no, it doesn't necessarily mean that we don't think 
your project or idea shouldn't exist on this earth. It just means that you're not a good fit for us as an investment. Um, they're, they're very different. And I know they don't feel different when you're a founder pitching a bunch of investors, but they are. And But if we think that there are people who you should still meet, we'll still make those introductions because it's about the valuable introduction that makes us a partner that people want to come to, whether that's on the strategic side as a payer or as a health system or as a founder um, in the future. So, so we really try to do that. And, and Hillary um, really drives most of that, that value. Um, your question around, you know, protecting or creating openness and inclusivity for some of these incubators. Um, I don't really have an answer to that because we don't really work with the incubation arms um, too closely from a, you know, bringing things in. We kind of catch them when they come out. Um, like we want to see like the companies that have gone through those. So I don't really have too much insight into what their selection process is. Um, so unfortunately, I, I, I don't know like what could make them more inclusive. You know, we definitely try to build as much, as many contacts at the operations level, um, which is generally outside the incubators or accelerators. Um, so in that sense, we, we do try to push a range of different innovative ideas. But um, with the accelerators, we're, we're more on the catching end um, that comes out, unfortunately. Thanks for the question, Shilvanda. Um, something I like to dig into on these calls, Cheryl, is uh, uncommon wisdom, uh, non-intuitive wisdom, things that maybe a lot of folks on this call might think are valuable when they come and pitch that you might not value as highly. And I guess this kind of gets into getting really tactical about how to succeed when pitching to someone like you. Um, uh, so, so what, is there anything that you think that founders value too much or more highly than you do when they come and pitch? Um, I think, I think the, well, so at the early stage, um, like the revenue projection line, like, you know, like we always like rebuild the model and like cut that down. Um, I, I think some founders like to demonstrate like, you know, a very, um, you know, famous or, you know, prized advisory board. Um, and, you know, I generally think, you know, some of those people don't always, um, you know, may not always be as active with the, with the business as, as it may seem. So it, it's nice, but, you know, unless there's one of those advisors that like, you know, when we reference, it's kind of like, yes, I'm spending, you know, five hours a week with this company, I'm kind of like, you're just like a, like a name on a slide. Um, so um, those are less important to me. Um, I think the things that I love are, you know, you can't really throw a rock without hitting a pretty large space in healthcare. So, you know, identifying that like, oh, you know, there's a lot of patients that don't get access to a rheumatologist, like, you know, like that, like that's not really like a, 
earth shattering insight to me. Um, you know, to me, it's more like, okay, well, what in the clinical flow or, you know, like, have you identified either because you have operating experience or, you know, other experience, like, have you identified like the soft underbelly that like is going to give you small startup with like very limited resources and people like, you know, an outsized advantage to like, to, to compete in, in, in a particular space. So I'm, I'm looking for that, that insight or that skill that like maybe nobody else has. Um, I, I also think, um, and, and this is actually pretty hard to prove on a slide deck, but like, you know, convincing me that there's long-term IP here, um, you know, is, is, pretty difficult to do. And, and I think a lot of people talk about like how they're going to sell data, right? Like when we have like X number of patients, like we can start to like monetize the data. Um, I don't know if I really believe in that. Um, so, you know, I usually just like take that revenue line, like off the like projections, like altogether. Um, you know, unless you are actually like a data company, like, you know, like, but you know, if, if, if you're not, um, so those are I, perfect. Those are perfect examples, by the way. I, I, I appreciate that, that sort of uncommon wisdom. Um, what sort of in intangibles do you look for in, in founders? Just totally data aside, when you're assessing a founder, we talk a lot about uh, the mindsets necessary to achieve really massive goals uh, here at Startup Health. So what are some of those that you look for? Um. I look for, um, this is like where like English not being my first language is like killing me. Like they're like, there's like a word in Chinese and it doesn't really quite translate to like English. So I'm like trying to like figure out the word, but it's kind of like, like a person's like pull, right? Like, and so, you know, like a founder is like constantly selling like their idea. So like, you need to be able to demonstrate that like you can, not just sell to customers, but you can attract, like you, you need to be able to attract the person who would be crazy to leave their job to come join you. Right. Like, or like in, in that's part of like pitching the investor too. like, you know, like, Oh my gosh, like I have to part with like, you know, 15, $20 million of like money, like, you know, like why? And so um, I think that that is like a very intangible skill. Like there's no like scale of like one to 10. It's like this feeling that like this person's going to be able to recruit amazing people and manage them. Right. And, and, and those are two different things. Like there are people who are able to recruit and attract like amazing people, but they're like terrible managers. And so then you're like really worried because like people will come in like believing the dream and then like, they're going to churn right out because they're like, this person has like no idea how to like manage people. So that like, like, both sides of that coin are, are, are quite difficult to find. Like you kind of sometimes find one or the other. Um, but, but that's like, you know, that's actually like a, a pretty important skill. Um, Wait, hold on. I, uh, Victor Wang from care coach wants to know what the Chinese term is that you were thinking of. It's like, a, um, I like it's, um, it, it would be kind of like a gravitas, like a, um, Oh, I think he uh, means in Chinese. Oh, in Chinese. It'd be like a, um, um, in Cantonese, we call it like Pai Tao, right? Like it's kind of like a, like you have kind of like a, um, 
almost like a, like a brand, like a, like a presence. Um, and it might be bigger than like what you really are. So like, you know, we, um, and so founders kind of need to have this, like, you know, my mom used to always say like, oh, like, does this person have like Python? Right. And like, so like they, they kind of like stand out. Um, and it's like a, it's like a aura almost. Um, and it's usually kind of connoting more to like, like luxury, but like, you know, it's, it's more, um, it's more around that. So, um, anyways, um, I, I feel like uh, people are dropping in ideas into the chat. As Thank to you. What, yes. What, what it might mean to them. And I think, I feel like we're like triangulating around an interesting concept. I hear tenacity, grit, resilience, storytelling, empathy, charisma. So resilience is the other one. Like okay. resilience, I think is the other one. And, and, and that is um, not just like, oh my gosh, like, you know, we're hitting rock bottom and I'm able to like bounce back. Like it's, to me, it's like actually the micro resilience of like knowing that like, hey, this isn't really going well. Like we have to tweak it immediately. Like, you know, it's not like, you know, I'm going to be stubbornly like pounding my head against the wall. And like, if we pound like, you know, for three more months or six more months, like, you know, we're going to like break through. It's like, no, 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 no. It's not working. Like, you know, like start like, you know, micro pivoting, like getting creative. And, and so, resilience is usually like tied to like a hardship and that's really important, but I'd like to not see you hit rock bottom before you demonstrate the resilience, right? Like if there's some way that you could create like flexibility in that along the way, like you're going to save us all a lot of pain. Um, and so that is something, um, that we try to look for. I mean, it's so hard to diligence these like softer skills, right? Um, yeah. That's something that you just have to spend a lot of time with the founder. We like to meet people while when they're raising their seed money, um, even though we're very upfront about the fact that you might be too early for us, but like, where can we help you? And how can we like be building a relationship so that we can see you demonstrate these things, you know, hire that first like third person, fifth person, you know, hit your first speed bump, um, if we can help you get through it, great even, but like, then when the A comes along or the B comes along, like we've more than done our diligence, right? Like we're ready to jump in because we've been able to like see you through this journey. Yeah. So um, I think that's really important. Yeah. I love that micro resilience idea. Um, so we're almost at the top of the hour. I want to give folks, if if you have a an insight that you'd like to share back to the group, something you learned that you'd like to reflect uh, in just 30 seconds, you can drop your, your name into the chat uh, and I'll call on you. But otherwise, uh, Cheryl, I just kind of want to give you the final word uh, to this group and to anybody watching this, kind of your, your, your words of wisdom moving forward. I have no wisdom. I mean, I think, you know, <laughs> I think, um, I think the, um, the most important thing for me is actually, um, we try to actually not have a lot of wisdom. Like we are very data-driven. I am an analyst. Like, you know, I think the best I can do is say like, Hey, I've seen this pattern recognition and, and that's about it. Right. Like everything else, like I can't possibly know anybody's business better than, you know, than, than you guys do. I mean, you're living and breathing it. Like, you know, like, um, I well, think having wisdom would be hubristic. So yeah, I, yeah. I, I try. Um, I, I don't think so. I think all I can say is I know it's a scary market. It's going to be a scary market for a while, right? Like, and, and um, I appreciate that. Um, but, um, you know, 
think of it as some of the best companies ever were built during these really hard times. Um, so if you can keep that as any consolation um, and this will also be a great time for your recruit people who truly care about your mission. Um, and so you can build some great company culture during this time. Um, but it's, um, you know, if we can be supportive at all, and I can, um, I can put my email here in the chat. So if anybody wants to talk or meet folks from our team, um, please feel free to um, send me an email, but I don't, I'm sorry. I don't have any, I don't have any real wisdom. <laughs> well, Cheryl, by by giving that word, you you shared your wisdom, which is humility itself, which I think everyone agrees um, shows you to be uh, wiser than you put on. So, uh, Cheryl, thank you so much for the last hour. I, I could tell from the the chat that everyone felt the way I did that you had a lot to um, to share with us today. Uh, yes, you are an analyst, and you brought you know information based off the data you've crunched, but you've also just been in the trenches. You have uh, you, you've seen what works and what doesn't, and uh, we could really feel that today. So, Cheryl, thanks We're for taking the time. Rooting for us. everyone to change healthcare. So, we hope you are all successful because there are like a million points of failure in our health system. So, we need all of it. It is a call to action. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Cheryl, and thank you everyone for taking part. Great questions. Yes. Thank you. Um, and we will be back with a fireside chat with Troy Bannister from Particle Health, as you see on October 18th. Uh, these are approximately once a month. Be watching your Monday newsletter for the Times. And uh, we hope to see you at the next session. So Cheryl, thank you again. And thank you everybody for coming today. Great, thank you guys. Bye. Take care, be well. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. Startup Health invests in health transformers around the world who are dedicated to achieving audacious health moonshots. If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 400 companies, go to StartupHealth.com. If you'd like to learn how you can invest in our Health Moonshot Impact Fund, go to HealthMoonshots.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back again with another episode next week.